Hi everyone, just a note before we start. This episode includes discussion around some sensitive material and topics such as physical and mental abuse and sexual assault. I wasn't myself. And then the same thing happened, I think, a few days after that. And then when that happened, there was a um, pedestrian, well, a passerby, that like, are you okay? You need help. You need to go to the hospital. You almost just got hit by a car. And I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. And she's like, no, that I really do need help. So, you know, she took me to a shop, a cafe. We had a cup of tea. And she's like, oh, I explained what was going on to her. And I was like, I can't go back to that house. And this was a complete stranger? This was a complete stranger. I was like, I can't go back to the house. I cannot go back. I just need to be outside. You know, and then um, she was like, okay, that um, have I been to any migrant help? I'm like, I don't even know. I never heard of that. Hello, and welcome back to Floodlight, a podcast from us here at the Anti-Slavery Collective that looks to raise awareness of modern slavery by sharing stories and speaking to interesting people that are looking to combat it in their own way. I'm Eugenie. And I'm Jules. And for the last nine years, we've been passionate about fighting against slavery in all its forms all over the world. There are currently more than 40 million people in slavery across the world today. That's more than at any other time in human history. So it's very much a modern problem. And those most likely to be affected are women and children. So where to start this week, Jules? Well, this episode, we spoke to the incredible Wumi who is a survivor of modern slavery and human trafficking and who is just exceptional and gave us so much hope. Um, She was trafficked at 12 years old by her family into domestic servitude. We met Wumi last year on one of our visits to Bramber Bakehouse and what inspired us so much about her was the gravitas and power she had in that room to inspire a group of other survivors to really turn their life around. And I really hope we capture that in today's episode. The Survivor's Voice has been integral in setting up the Anti-Savory Collective. And so today, Jules and I are really proud to be able to use this platform to share Wumi's message. Oh, guys. Well, Wumi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. You, you, have you done a podcast before? Um... Not in a studio like this, but yeah, at home. It's quite fun being in this room, isn't it? You it feel is. like a sort of, uh, you feel like you're on radio and your voices sound so much better. Mm-hmm. And with the uh, microphone, yeah. it sounds so so much better. But yeah, thank you for joining us, Wumi. It's thank so you. nice to see you. So for all our listeners out there, we met Wumi um, last year. In at the Brown Barbrake House. Where, what, when did we meet? In June? Um, yes. Yeah, in the summer. We came to learn how to bake lemon drizzle cake. Yes. At the Bramber Breakhouse. <laughs> Taught by no, you. No, no, yeah. the, the Bramber Breakhouse, Jules. Bramber. Sorry, I always say Bramber. Bramber <laughs> Bakehouse. And we learned how to make delicious lemon drizzle cake. Yes. And Bramber Bakehouse is an amazing organisation that looks to um, bring survivors of trafficking together yeah. and teach them how to bake. Yeah. And you were Just on the course. Just learning new skills, yeah. How long, when did you do the course? Um, two years ago. I think. The master became the apprentice, no, the apprentice became the master. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> I really didn't like baking before then. I think it's too messy and I can't stand anything messy. <laughs> but um, yeah, I got enrolled in 2019. Um, I was at a safe house at the time 
So um, I got enrolled and I just thought, why not? Let's try on your skills. And then the first day was amazing. You know? What's your favourite food to make? Oh, well, bacon, scones, English scones. <laughs> and what about your favourite Nigerian food to make? Um, uh, jollof rice. Oh my God, okay. <laughs> Tell us everything. Rice. Tell us everything. Um, jollof rice. Okay, so... The best part of Nigerian jollof rice for me, because everybody have their own aspect of what jollof rice is, but for me, it's the burnt aspect. Okay. You can smell the burning of it, like the pot itself being burnt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that the rice pot being burnt? The rice pot So it's a bit burnt. like Persian rice, if you've ever had that one, it's all crispy on the bottom. Yes. Yeah. And then you can smell it. I mean, the harama. Oh, goodness. Yum. Yeah. And where in Nigeria are you from? Where did you grow up? Um, Ibadan. Yeah. I, for our listeners it's, and also usually and I I've not been there like, yeah no, <laughs> no. it is all your state and um, it's not too far from Lagos but okay. yeah it, it is not part of Lagos but two hours away from Lagos something like that okay yeah but I just can't tell you if it's west, south, east or no I can't <laughs> sorry <laughs> no don't worry and um, and we, we we we're here today talking about um, the topic of of human trafficking yes and um, you amazingly and so incredibly are a survivor of human trafficking. And you've done us the great honour of coming on today um, to, to raise awareness mm-hmm. and to share a bit of your story so that others maybe can learn and how to spot what's going on in the world. Um, oh, absolutely. Are you happy to just Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm happy because... Um, Child trafficking or child servitude is not topic that's out there mm. and there's not much awareness out there. So it is something that I'm happy to discuss and let there be more awareness about it. And then people will be able to notice when something is not right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that, Wimmy. Really, thank you. Because without the survivor's voice, without your voice, none, of, nothing would really happen at all. So you're very important to us and <laughs> to our you. listeners. Um, would you would you mind sharing your story? Um, no, not at all. I mean, um, yeah, I was born in Nigeria, and I grew up there to the age of twelve. Um, a single parent in home because with Africa, this this thing with a man and a woman, and the man has absolute right to every single thing. So, before I was even two years old, there's an issue with my parents whereby my dad must have cheated and superior in I mean he's superior so he cheated and he's the one that still has the upper hand and apparently sent my biological mother packing um because he wanted to be with mistress something along the line like mm. that so it was a uh issue of she wasn't allowed to come back for us and of course as a male he had to go to work he worked out of town and um uh, my sisters were put into boarding school. So we basically grew and up how in many sisters school. did you have? Two big sisters. Two I'm big the youngest. Sisters. Okay. Yeah. Of them all. So um yeah, we're basically put into boarding school till I was about the age of twelve. And then one day in boarding school we had a driver, a personal driver. So it's someone that we were used to. And um he came to school that day and said, um, I was in my first year of secondary school. And I remember saying, oh, your father asked me to come and get you and your other sister. You know, the two What's of them. Sister's name? Just went, um, Bisola. Bisola. Yeah. And then we're like, okay, packed our bags and went with him. And then we didn't go to our hometown, which was Ibadan, in your state. And then he drove us to Lagos, to the airport. And it was like, oh, your father said he's going to um, be with his um, girlfriend in London. 
I'm like, okay, where is he? And he's like, oh, he would come and join us after. Um, so, yeah, and we just pretty sat in the car. And then after about two, three hours, the driver came back. His name was Richard and um, came back, took us to the boarding area and handed our passport to us and gave a note to my sister to say, when we get to the boarding gates, just to let them know that that's the address we're going to. And that was it. We didn't even have to go through security or anything. It had done all of that. So we found ourselves. Wow. Um, what, what year is that? Oh, this was 2002. Wow. Yeah, just after the summer break. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. And uh, we found ourselves here and then we got to... So how, how did you feel as you were getting on that plane? Oh, it was mixed feelings. As a child, you know, you know, from a single parent family, which where the dad wasn't really present, we're mostly in boarding school. So the thought of having a mother-like you know, figure was really exciting. Yeah. I remember her and my sister saying, oh, we can't wait to meet her. I mean, finally, we're going to be in like a proper nuclear family yeah. home. So we were excited, you know, and of course it was great to be out of boarding school. Yeah. <laughs> and had Richard, the driver, told you anything about what to expect or where you were going other than that piece of paper within mm, the dress? Absolutely nothing other than, oh, your father. And, and I think because he had said our father, because yeah. usually... Is like the middle person between her and her father, mm. you know, because we're in boarding school. So when we need anything, it would be the one that would contact and it would be like, oh, your father is going to send this. And my dad would have sent something through him to us. Even visiting time, it would be the one to come over. So he was a well-trusted person in the family. Mm. So we, didn't, we believed every single thing. The only thing was when we were on the plane, there were there was a couple and then they would usually come to check on us. Are you Okay. I'm like, we're okay, we're traveling by ourselves. Like, oh, they noticed that we're traveling by ourselves, right? Yeah. They're just checking up on us. And that was it. So when we got to Itra Airport, it was late at night. And then I remember the couple, they were in front of us. And they were saying, if you need any help, just let us know. And just let them know that, you know, we're looking after you guys. I'm like, oh, thank you, you know. And then um, when we got to the arrivals coming off the of the um, plane, we asked where were we going. My sister gave out the little note to say we're going to see so it's a person with a name and address. And they're like, oh, okay. And that was it. And they're like, is anyone out looking after you? And we're like, oh, those couples over there. And they're like, okay. So they let us out. And then we got out. We're like standing there because we thought the lady we were coming to me was Madame Comfort, according to the name on the paper. We thought she would be waiting for us at the arrivals gate. And then there was nobody there. <laughs> so we were just like, what are we going to do? I mean, I was 12. My sister was 15 at the time. So we were like, what are we going to do? But, you know, the view was really beautiful. So I wasn't even thinking anything. I was so excited. And the lady came over, the couple from the plane. And she was like, you guys okay? And we were like, oh, we're waiting for the lady. And then my sister gave the note to her. And then she was like, oh, the lady was like, oh, that's fine. She will call us a taxi. And the taxi will take us to the address. I'm like, okay. And so she did call the taxi. The taxi took us to the address. And we're like, thank you very much. When we got to the address, um, the taxi called the number on the paper. And then the lady came down, got us out of the cab. It was probably about 11 at night. Did you have any belongings with you? Or you had oh, yeah, we had a, a bag each. Yeah, which were from all our stuff from school. So our school uniforms and the rest of them. So, yeah, um, when we when she took us in, she was like, everyone is sleeping right now. And apparently we had um, half brother 
that she had the son for my dad. So we'll get to meet him in the morning and we'll meet everyone else in the morning. I'm like, okay. And then the following morning, everyone's gone out. And then when we wake up, I think it must have been late afternoon. She took us out just to get used to the environment. By the time we come back home in the evening, the house was full. And then she started to introduce us to this, to that. And apparently she, um, there was an elderly man in the house who was a husband and a older, older son who was probably about 40 at the time, was her first child and like three other girls. So basically she's got four children and then including the youngest one who she called my brother. So like family of five. So we're like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> you know, and she's like, I'll explain everything to you later and everything. So I'm like, so where's my dad? Is he coming? And she's like, oh, he's going to come. He's going to call us and all of that. And she just moved all our stuff to a room. It's like a storage room, basically. And because she had to get a bunk that day. So she got a bunk bed. They fixed it all up. And then Alma says that's to stay there with the rest of the storage stuff. And that's when uh, me and my sister started looking at ourselves like... This isn't right. And you can't ask questions, mm. you know. Like, growing up in Nigeria, you can't ask questions as a child. And I think that's one of the awareness as well that I wanted to bring out in my lifetime now like it's important that children have the freedom of speech mm. to be able to ask questions so when they find themselves in situations you know they can be aware of and they can ask questions and they can speak out yeah. so yeah so that was it and and where was this lady from was she nigerian as um well? she's nigerian as well she's nigerian. And she, you so you got there and she was married yeah. with four kids yeah and the fifth was the brother yeah and was he your brother you don't know. We don't know to this day because right. we were never really. I mean, we were excited. We we're still excited because, like, okay, at least we're in a family home. But um, as days goes by, it was very hostile. Like even the youngest who was supposed to be, you know, our half brother, were trying to be close. And as I was the youngest one, so I was so excited to just have a little one. But it was just so hostile as well. I'm like, okay, you know, it is what it is. And Wumi, how long were you then in the house for and, and what was the time like for you? Um, oh, we were there for a few years and it was very hostile before we were sent to another house. So um, we're basically there. We had to do all the chores. Um, the chores was laid out for both her and my sister. And, um, what kind of chores? And were you going oh, to school as well? Yes, we were enrolled into school and we're told that in this country, in the UK, nobody talks to each other. You don't know your neighbor's business. Your neighbors don't know your business. You don't talk to nobody. Everybody mind their business. That's how the country runs. So you say nothing. Like, okay. So um, that rules was laid out, basically. Anything's wrong with you? Nope, I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> you don't discuss nothing with your neighbor, as you can see. Right. Nobody knows each other. So you keep your business to yourself. And yeah, so okay. Rule number one. Don't talk. Yeah. <laughs> Understood. Uh, and then the chores came in whereby um, we, uh, we had to wake up at four in the morning, make sure the house was clean, make breakfast, uh, iron the uniforms and make sure the bathroom was clean. And yeah. And then when we come back from school, same thing. Make sure the shopping is done. Food is ready for dinner. Clothes are washed. The house is fully cleaned. The, all the rooms are cleaned, the children's room. And then dinner time, 
serve the family in the living room and then we get to eat in her room. Right. Yeah. And then after eating, we stay in our room, whereas the rest of the family stay in the living room and just have the little family time. So that's when it starts to dawn on us that, okay, this is not what it actually yeah. seems. But, you know, as time goes on, we kept on asking, how's our dad? And, I mean, you know, we didn't really have that sort of relationship with our dad in the first place, so, but we'd get to talk all the time because we're in boarding school. But at least it would still call every now and then. So she was like, oh, um, you called, but, you know, you were in school or you called. Um, she wasn't at home. So as time goes on, there was a time she was like, okay, speak to your dad. And then... It was just a case of how you doing, we're okay. So till today, I can't be too sure if it was mm. actually our father that was popped to. But um, I think after three years, just right after my GCSE, GCSEs, um, we're told we're going to see someone, visit someone and hunt in Kent. And okay, uh, my sister got in the car. We got taken down to Kent to this family. Um, we had two little boys. And the oldest was, I think, five, and the youngest was two at a time. And they were like, well, this is where you're going to be. Okay. <laughs> and then the following day, we had our bags to the house. I'm like, okay, so how do I go to school from yeah. Kent to Rhode Island? And was this another Nigerian family another or English Niger family? Another Nigerian. Nigerian family. And that was where, I mean, like I said, the previous three years was the fun part. There was nothing fun about it, but he but was, it was yeah. <laughs> yeah. better than this. Part. It was hostile. It was bad. It was not nice. But you know, in our head, that's still mom, and you know, we were told to call her mom, mm. and we started calling her mom at a point. You know, so at least that was something. Mm. And then yeah, we got here, and um, the lady she works night. And the husband works day. So between I and my sister, we have to kind of rotate it. So my sister takes the kids to school in the morning. And um, now we have to wake up super early to get the kids ready, get the food ready, get everything ready, clean the house. It was a much bigger house. Clean the house. And um, because school was now like three hours away, you know, from mm. Rhoda High to Kent. So we had to get on the bus to get to school. Right. So every all the house chores has to be done by five thirty, get on the first bus to be able to make it to school. Oh my god. Which was really hard. So I'm usually late. But no question was asked. Really? Although I was in year eleven now, so like okay, maybe it's just me trying to I mean, I had a teacher called me up and say, um, because you're in year eleven and you just finished your GCSE doesn't mean you can just do whatever you like and I and I couldn't say anything. Mm. But from my record, I've always been consistent and early because school was like how my sister's picture. Yes, because, you know, we can't wait. We'll wake up for in the morning at the previous house in um in South London so that we can get everything done and just escape to school. Yeah. And then I remember I started taking after school activities. I would do drum, I would do dance, yeah. just because I just don't have an excuse to stay, you know, out. At school. Yeah, and get on really late. Mm. But five six, so um yeah so would I would usually get to school early in time, and then so I was even saying to myself, come and ask me a question about it or yeah. do something about it. Like why are you? Why is nobody noticing? Yeah, like why are you late? You know, constantly. And 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 is it? But you never said anything because of for fear of of what they would do to you, yeah. or because you were told never to talk. Um, both. 
We yeah. were told never to talk, and then we and then it was a. I could be rebellious because it's like I have a mind of my own. But you know, when you grow up in a um, society that tells you um, you don't have a say, and when you have a say, you could really get in mm. serious trouble. So in school, I couldn't really do much because we're being told this country if you say something you'll be the one to get in trouble because right. everybody mind their business so they don't know they don't even want to know your business right yeah so even if you let me ask the questions like you don't say anything because we then think we still have to go back home so if i do say something and it gets to her attention i don't know what will happen so right. it's best and how long were you in that second house for oh um was were there for like two years and we were there for that two years and until my sister actually a plan to escape because that place was a nightmare in the sense whereby the lady goes to work at night. So, you know, I think there was some sort of molestation going on with my sister that I wasn't aware of. With the father. With the father. And then after a while, there was with myself as well. Like when I've been sent to shop and he'd be like, oh, I'll take you to the shop. I'm like, okay. You know, I have no say. And I thought, okay, please take it to the shop so she can come back in time. And then we'll be in the car and then it will try to fiddle around. And, you know, that's when my I started to, I started to raise on hyper. And then it got, it started getting worse. And I didn't know that was going on with my sister as well. She didn't know what was going on with me. Mm. But, you know, it was just so really also because even the lady, when she comes back home, clean the toilet, she'd be like, oh, the toilet is not well cleaned, cleaning over, cleaning again. You know, it was really, really bad. And my sister at the time, I think she just finished college. So she had people that she was talking to as friends. So I think um, she asked, she asked her plan and she said to the lady, one time the lady sent her um, on an errand and she said to the lady, oh, can my sister come with me? Because there's quite a lot of shopping and she would need some help. And then she was like, okay, okay, okay. And, but, you know, it was funny because she never let us out together. Never. Really? Oh, no. That was the never. rule. Even when we're going to school, we never go together. We never come back together. That was so you were isolated from even your sister? Yes. Wow. So um, this day was funny that she was like, okay, she, she can go with you, you know. And that was it. I just remember my sister, as soon as I walk out the door, she's like, run. Run. <laughs> Did you have your passports? And Okay. Now, this was the reason why in school we couldn't really say anything. Because the lady, the first lady, Madame Comfort, she had our passport the night that we came back. She took mm. the passport off my sister and we never saw the passport again. Really? So it was one of the reasons why we couldn't really do much because we know yeah. if I was to say something in school yeah. and I have to still go back home yeah. to yeah, her. Yeah, get your passport. and yeah. yeah. And like I said, there was in school, you know, we had so many other lectures about um, sexuality and all this other stuff, but nothing to do with, you know, other realities of life that mm. people face, yeah. you know, in terms of, oh, if you do speak out, there's help. Yeah. You can get yeah. help here. There's child services. We didn't know that. Yeah. We didn't grow up here, so we didn't even know about child services, you know. And then, of course, because we were at that time considered as a foreigner, you know. But even if you did know about it, it's the fear. Yeah. The also, fear. being taken away at a 12-year-old by someone you trusted, how then can you trust anyone ever again? And that was the problem uh, my sister faced. And I think it's only now as adult that we're trying to, we're starting to get out of that because only until recent when I started getting help through um, therapies that I started to rethink what he, my father, I didn't actually knew. But during yeah. those times, we actually thought it was part of it. Right. That was the truth. Even, yeah. even till like two years ago, I still thought, why would he do this? 
you know, but then it was going through therapy that I thought, what if he didn't? Right. There's a possibility because... Are you we've, still in touch with your father? No, we've never heard from him. We've never seen him since then. So he doesn't know where you are and you don't know where he is. You know, but all those years we grew up thinking, why would he do, mm, do this? Yeah. And that was what I had in my head. So I had a lot of trust issues and, you know, and all of that. So, yeah. So when we escaped to my sister's ha a friend's house back in South London, um, I remember her calling Madame Comfort, this lady. And then um, she was like, well, you have to go back there. And that was when I knew that my sister was also going through molestation because she had mentioned it on the phone to her that day. Like, yeah. you can't go back there. This is what's happening. She's like, well, you have to go back there. And then she's like, no, can we come over to her? She's like, no, you can't come back here. You have to go back there. And then as time goes on, few days goes on, there was a lot of threat. I'm losing money. Um, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You can't, and if you were to go to the police, I would report you because you don't have your your ID, you don't have a stay, you don't have this. And then they were like, what's going on? Like, it was all like, <laughs> I mean, this, it's like after six years, yeah. it's like all the terminology she was using was just, was just new yeah. to us. So like, okay. All of a sudden, did she become a trafficker rather than this, this yes. woman that was looking after you, I guess? Yeah, because like, don't forget what we were doing at that, the previous house. It was actually kind of normal growing up as a Nigerian kid because, like, you do the chores, you do this, you do that, you do every, you get treated like that. So it it became normal to us. Right. The only difference was we were really isolated and they were yeah. really hostile to us. Right. Which we kind of like accepted, you know. But we didn't think much more of it. Right. Yeah, you didn't think that we're in a difficult situation. Yes. Here. It was only you, later until we on. got to the second house. And right. you waking up at four, four in the morning to do all of those chores when the other children in the house yeah. were asleep. It was hard. That's not. Yeah, it was hard. But, you know, like, oh, because we're from Nigeria and that's what kids in Nigeria do. And when we're in Nigeria, we didn't even have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. in boarding school. But, you know, because that's what was expected of us, you know. So it's like, it made it seem normal. But then the hostile environment, like, this is not normal, but like, okay, we don't have a choice. That's the only mm. person we know at that particular time that is the mother and the father at the same time. Right. So, so there's nothing. So when you were on the call and you heard all this terminology, was that the first time? That he actually done and I was like, okay, she definitely isn't what we say and thought been. she was. And then that's when the actual, you know, like, it's funny. The irony is, we escaped, mm. but then it felt like we went from one bad situation to a really bad situation because then, like, okay, we're starting to find out about our passport, having ID. Where I mean, we couldn't even what go to do? police because we went to, we started going to our church, my sister's friend's church, and then there was a barrister there and the, we explained everything to the barrister. And the barrister was like, I mean, it was funny because they didn't even think of it as anything much more as well because... They're Nigerians as well, so it's like maybe they're used to it mm. or there's so many of it going around, it mm. became normal or maybe they're just blinded to us, to it. You know, like, oh, it's fine, yeah. so what? But, um, and she was, it was like, okay, you can find out what's going on and see if we can get our passport renewed. And then he came back and it was like, well, he got in touch with the home office and we were never on the system. They don't have our passport and... We were shot because we remembered filling application form to um for leave to remain. I think about a year after 
we were in the house with her. She made us feel the firm and she said to us to take it to the lawyer and tell the lawyer that she would come over. So whatever happened after that. No idea. So we were shocked. I'm like, what does that mean? And he was like, that means you're um, illegal in the country. You're not meant to be here. And now at that time I was um, 18. I was just turning 18. And my sister was like 20, 21. So like you're matured now. Mm. So you'll be treated as adult. So like, okay, so what do we do? It's like, well, you need to put an application to the home office and all of that. But we don't, we don't, we're not working. I mean, the church was supporting us at this time. You know, trying to tell our story to the barrister and to lawyers. And it's like, well, you've got to pay before anything happens. And then when we even had sponsorship from one of the church members, it was a case of, okay, you need your original ID. Oh, gosh. And then we've actually had someone to sponsor her. So we paid for the application form and everything. And then they came back. The home office came back saying, we need our original ID. Well, like the statement is there, everything is there. We don't have the original ID. Mm. I'm like, well, you need your original ID to prove when you came to the country and you came in legally. And I'm like, I was twelve, yeah. You know. And and at this point, so did you, <laughs> did you know what trafficking was? No, yeah, you didn't know you'd been trafficked. No, and it seems like everyone around us didn't know. And this no. is what I said. I think the awareness yeah. it was so normal to all of them that there was nothing hard about it. No, you were massively exploited. Yeah. But what year was this um, when, when you escaped? Um, this was, I think, two... Eight? Nine? Uh, um, 2009. So it's still, it's still much before the Modern Slavery Act. It's still before yeah. that there was lots of terminology that we now speak about in terms Absolutely. of this was domestic servitude. Yes. And now we know that. And, then, and it, yeah, it, and like just like what you said, which is why it's important for me to get this story out, yeah. because within those years, we've been to so many lawyers and even child services, student services, nothing. Yeah. I mean, nobody even said, you know, you, you could go to so 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 place mm. and they could take on your case. Nobody. It's like they didn't even know that all the services yeah. existed. And like you say, the, the UK didn't even have a modern slavery bill or a legal framework to no. understand what you were going through at that stage. No. That was that came five years later. Yes. And then, you know, through that, we st- my start going to a relationship, I had to get into a relationship because we had no one to, you know, support us. Mm. I couldn't work, my stuff couldn't mm. work. We were treated more like adult and not just adult, which are as illegal immigrant, adult, illegal immigrant. And then it became, oh, well, without Heidi, you can do this mm. and then threats from the arm office about um you're on the system on the police system. If you're um if you if the police were to stop us, we'll be deported like deported to where? I don't yeah. even know the name of the I mean, I know the state is your state anybody, but I don't even know where. You didn't know where exactly you didn't <laughs> know where you were going back to. You didn't know where I your father was. Your I don't mother. even know the address of where we lived. I don't yeah. even know the area where we lived. Yeah. You know, it's like saying I live in London, we're in London, I have yeah. no clue. That's yeah. it's just an example of our life back home. So, yeah, so it was a case of, okay, we couldn't go to the police, we couldn't do anything. And then whilst I was in a relationship where she was being exploited, I also myself was being exploited and I had so many, you know, situations about it would be like, well, you should be happy I'm even taking care of you. So whatever I'm doing to you, you should take it happily. Like, you should be happy with whatever mm. situation you're in right now because it's still better than yeah. 
I mean, it was it was really bad. Again, it's it's again someone exploiting the vulnerable yes. part of you, which is I can't go anywhere. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, they'll even say it. Uh, um, it would be like, well, it's not like you can go to the police anyway. So. Oh my god. Suck suck it up. I mean, suck yeah. it in and suck yeah. it up and just take it. <laughs> and wow. how, did, how did you get from that exploitative situation to? The Salvation Army. Okay, that's wow. a great question because then that's the beginning. So this, all of this, has taken years. So in 2017, I literally had enough and like I had a mental breakdown because it's just been going on yeah. far too long, and I had a mental breakdown. And I remember working under the street. So when I'm coming back to this area, like today, for the first time, I was actually excited I was coming to this area because. The last time I was in this area was 2017, and this was in Stoke Norrington, not too far. <laughs> and I just remember walking on the street. I just walked out of the house, walked on, walked onto onto the street, and I almost got you by a car. You know, I didn't even know I was on the road. I mean, the horn was going, and no one was screaming. I was like, "You were just so." I wasn't yeah, here. Like, yeah. And I just got up and I kept on walking to the shop. And I'm, I thought people were looking like, "You okay? Is she okay?" Yeah. I didn't realize anything. I think about. An hour later, <laughs> I went to the shop, picked whatever it was I needed to pick. I don't remember what it was. And then I think on my way back, I'm like, something happened. And that was when I knew that I, knew I need help. Mm. And then I went back home and then I wasn't myself. And then the same thing happened, I think, a few days after that. And then when that happened, there was a um, pedestrian, well, a passerby. They're like, are you okay? You need help. You need to go to the hospital. You almost just got eat by a car. And I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm okay. And she's like, no, that I really do need help. So, you know, she took me to a shop, a cafe. We had a cup of tea. And she's like, oh, I explained what was going on to her. And I was like, I can't go back to that house. And this was a complete stranger. This was a complete stranger. I was like, I can't go back to that house. I cannot go back. I just need to be outside. You know, and then um, she was like, okay, that... um." Have I been to any migrant help? I like I don't even know. I've never heard of that. Yeah, you know. And she's like, "Oh, there's one I stopped knowing that I could go to, and everything." So she gave me the address, and yeah. And then I started going there, but the place opened at ten o'clock in the morning. But everyone gets there at six five in the morning because they only attend to like the first twenty people. And then like by seven o'clock, you've got like sixty people waiting to be seen. <laughs> so wow. yeah. I had a trip there like the 20th time yeah. <laughs> and he took me like one day like I'm going to sit on the bus from 12 o'clock at midnight yeah. until I get sane <laughs> so that's exactly yeah. what I did and um, that day um, I was seen by uh, one of the people from Dokne Retain Migrant Help and they were like well we can't help you here but they could send me to another migrant help centre that could possibly help so um, this was all in the space of six months from the stranger that spoke yeah. to me. So within that six months, I was so far up in. I think that was the time then, you know, squatting anywhere with friends, wherever, you know, because I just couldn't go back to to, where you to my ex partner. So um, yeah, so that's how I got to Hamminger, um, migrant help, and then I spoke to one of the barrister, barrister Blair bless her soul wherever she is um and as i was telling her she was like oh she need to take a statement and i'm like okay cool i've got nothing to hide like at this point 
I really had nothing to give anymore. Mm. I mean, I'd given up completely. I really didn't care about anything else. So um, I just gave her my statement and she was like, oh my gosh, you've been, um, you're definitely a survivor of child servitude. I'm like, what is what? that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's like, she didn't explain it to me. She's like, you were being exploited. Just like what you said. That mm. was the first time that I, I mean, I was, this was 2017. I was, How I just turned 29. And wow. I was like, what? I've been going through this since I was 18. I was like, what? She's like, um, so I was like, okay, are you able? And then she took, like, my statement was like, say, four, 500 words long. Mm. And she basically turned into 2,000 words. And I said, how did you know this? And she was saying a lot of the things that I didn't even say. Mm. A lot of things that I've cut out, you know. Right. But she could tell from what I was saying and from my actions and my body language. And I was just like, are you able to know exactly the details of the stuff that happened? And she was like, because she was, she is a survivor of child servitude herself. So she recognized when she saw one. And then that was when I said, so this is what's been missing. So I just explained everything to her. And she's like, oh, she would refer me to Salvation Army. And she said within five days, they would get back to me. And she really did advocate for me so that it doesn't take longer and within five days I was put into um a safe house basically in London in London so that was the start of the another journey wow so yeah but um so Barrister Blair is I mean really we thank her yeah we thank her and amazing that she also went through it herself yeah and that's the only I, I mean this is where awareness is I mean how do you find a solution to something you don't know about mm. but um she relate and she was able to do something about my situation because she understood yeah and she knew what it was but it was so funny because i've been to so many lawyers in between that and they were just really more about well you need to pay and even though when you know you write a statement they still don't know no one has ever mentioned the word exploitations or child service yeah and so, we mean did you ever feel let down by law enforcement here in the UK or the system? Um, to be sincere, I wouldn't say the law enforcement because they can't only do something when they're aware of what's going on. Yeah. But I would say the system as a whole because right from secondary school, there were a lot of pointers. You know, like, I don't have any guidance that comes to school for parental yeah. meetings and all of that. And then, um, yeah, I was really bubbly, smiley. That's just my nature. I mean, I'll smile when I'm crying, (laughs) you know. But uh, it was more of, um, I think, a lot of things went unnoticed because people didn't understand what they were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I think think that's one of the major problems. And even with the lawyers, lawyers were like the ones that should have even been like picked to help. But it's like they didn't even know what it was either. Can you talk about um, the Salvation Army and what they did for you? Because we love the Salvation Army. We work with them so much. So 33 now and what's happened. Um, Okay, so let's say the story of now started with Salvation Army. It was the end of 2019. Um, Yeah, 2019 because that was when I got into the safe house. And um, I was in road tour calls with the Brown Bay Cows, and I wasn't going to actually take it on. I was, you know, 
excited. Oh yeah, I'm getting help from the this this thing called the NRM, and they're saying within four to five days they'll look at your case. You know, and I was thinking, oh, finally, finally, you know, I could start thinking about the future. But then four to five days went past, two months went by, four months went by, and then I had some of the ladies in the house. You know, because one of the things that helped me in life is. If I'm in a situation and I see others in a situation, it, it um, distracts me from my situation because then I can go full in and try and help their situation. You know, and in doing so, I block my situation away from my head. So I managed to get uh, some ladies together, like, let's just do something fun. You know, yeah. what's your hobby? We can do something just to lift the spirit in the safe house. And a lot of time when we come together, a lot of the ladies will be like, it's like you're being given a lifeline, you know, like you're drowning and there's a boat that came to help you. And then suddenly you're on the boat all by yourself. You can paddle back, you can paddle in. You're like, you're just stuck in the middle of the ocean. And that was how the safe house felt. Yeah. You know, and then I just, it, after a while, you start to lose up again. Because you're like, is this all Ponzi? Is it all gimmicks? Is he like we're trying to help or we're not helping? What is this? But, you know, but now I understand better. Salvation Army are doing a great, fantastic job. But it's just like now the, sh the numbers are rising. And I again, I think because it took so long for awareness to be Catch up. with modern slavery. Because when I was at the safe house, funny enough, there were at least about six other ladies that were Nigerian that, you know, were within the vicinity that I was had in 2002 in South London that went exactly through what I went through. And wow. I've never met anyone at all. And did that help that you had other peers that you could share your story with and who might have a different level of understanding that you'd I think that made it worse for me. Made that it made worse. it worse for me because um, before I thought it was just me and my sister, so it's okay, we can go out on the radio, right? But then when you realize that there were so many more that were missed, you know, it became, I became angry, I became upset. Mm. Like, why? What happened? Is it because we're Nigerian? You know, different things start to, you start thinking about certain things. Is it because you're black? Is it because you're this? Is it because you're that? But then it's not, that's nonsense. It's not because of that. It's just, that's just where, mm. because within, the, that's where the cultural aspect comes in. Because within that, um, you know, being Nigerian, being African, even people that could have noticed, like, oh, it's normal. Hmm. Mm. Working won't kill her. Working hard, cleaning the house won't kill her. Waking up in the morning won't kill her. That's what she's supposed to do. It's going to make her stronger. And, you know, the belief that should make you stronger as a woman, you know, that should empower you. And it's like, no, that, 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 that's not true. That, that is abuse. Yeah, exploitation. So yeah. I think it was a cultural aspect of it. That. And how many years did you spend in this, with the Salvation Army in the safe house? Oh, yeah. So thankfully, you know, um, it wasn't so long because um, I I did get a lot of help while I was with the while I was Salvation Army in at the safe house. I had access to um, the legal system, and then I was able to apply for asylum, and I got put into. Um, I've only just been out of the asylum a year, and I forgot wow. the names already. <laughs> Easily done. Uh, yeah, I was going to um, an asylum accommodation so I, w I was there for like six months you know so thankfully you know I'm glad for that but yeah I mean that was enough like to think about life again because like I really lost hope 
and like I studied IT in college and I've really lost all of that because after so many years of not doing anything with yourself, mm. it just feels so worthless. So this is why Bramba Bakehouse was like a lifeline, a second lifeline for me. Learning the new skills, you know, it started to give me this ability that I thought wasn't there anymore. Like I wanted to do more. I wanted to learn more skills. I wanted to start thinking about the future. And then there's not just baking that we learned there. There was, um, they gave us a lot of tools Life skills. Yeah, life skills, well-being, you know, start thinking about the future, start thinking about what you have inside of you, you know, forget about what you couldn't do before, but start thinking about what you can do now and moving forward, you know. <laughs> so the Wumi that sits here with us today is 33 years old. Yeah. She's got the brightest eyes and the biggest <laughs> smile. And Thank you. will you tell our listeners about Diva's Kitchen and oh, what, yes. what the next 10 years looks like for you? Oh, great. So, um... Currently, I'm studying psychology at Goldsmith University, but Diva's Kitchen came to be. Wow, let's just take a moment <laughs> to say, wow. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it was just part of the life skills that I learned from um, Brown Barbeck House and the Sophie Ace um, Foundation, which is thinking about the future. And then, you know, while I was waiting, doing the asylum process, I thought, let me start researching. And then I realized that asylum seekers can you know, have an education, can go to school, can go to college and can go to um, university. So I applied for scholarship and I got in. So, um, and yeah, all the skills I learned from Bamba Break House during the COVID-19 when the lockdown came, you know, and there was nothing else to do instead of being stressed, you know, especially when you have um, mental health issues, it's important to know how to take care of yourself. Yeah. Your well-being is very important because everything, it's about the brain. You need to make sure that your brain stays healthy. 100%. So during the lockdown, I just thought, let's go into baking mode. Yeah. I just started baking. <laughs> I just baked and baked. And my biggest fans were my niece and nephew. <laughs> they love anything I make. And they're like, oh, this cake is nice. That's nice. I'm like, okay, why don't we start... Um, uh, you teach them yeah, how to bake as well. You, yes. Why don't we start that? You know, start a YouTube channel. So yeah, that's how Divas Kitchen came to be. And because I'm a big lover of food and I like to experiment, I mean, I'm all type of food girl. So I would eat Caribbean food, make curry girl, name it. <laughs> maybe you should, maybe we should have dinner one day. And you can, you, we can cook for you and you cook for oh, us. Oh yeah, we can maybe. do a cooking channel. Yeah, <laughs> cooking yes. day. Yeah, yeah. cooking challenge. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love all sort of food because cooking, being in the kitchen, actually does make me happy. Because like when people go recipe, how do you do this? Like you know, just you can make things your own. Yeah, there's no you know, um, there's no book of law or law of book for food. Yeah, exactly. You know, food yeah. can be anything. You make it as long as it has taste. And not <laughs> When um, if you if to all of the survivors listening to this podcast, if you could impart one piece of advice or wisdom or message of hope, what would that be? Oh, how to say um, whatever situation you're in right now, you know, whatever it is that's going on in your life, wherever it is you are, make use of the time that you have now. Dwell uh, in the positive and not dwell in the negative. Whatever situation you're in currently, wherever you are, instead of drowning in what could have been or what should be or where you should be right now, just take a paper, take a pen and say, you know what, 
where do I see myself in the future? What do I want to do? What skills do I have? What don't I have? What do I need to learn? And I would say research. Researching is key because you just could never know what you would find if you, if you don't research. So yeah, research and just make the best time of your time positively. Positively. What a lesson. Thank you so much. Um, Wimi, thank you for joining us today. I think the biggest takeaway from all this is that um, people have to be aware and you've given us your voice today and you've shined massive light on what happened to you. I think I'm kind of shocked that you went through so many years up until only a few years ago not even knowing that you were trafficked. Yeah. And I think Jules and I, it's so important that we, we learn this and our listeners hear this, that you know, if there is this situation happening, people aren't aware of it, yeah. even to that happened to themselves. Yeah. So thank you for lending your voice. It's so, so important that you came today and it wouldn't even get a scratch on the surface unless you, people like you were sharing your story. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you, Wumi. <laughs> thank you, Thank Wimi. you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Floodlight and thank you to Wumi for sharing her story with us. Please join us next week where we'll be joined by award-winning actress and activist extraordinaire Dame Emma Thompson. She chats to us about her extensive work in fighting modern slavery that's been a mainstay of her acting career. And we can't resist asking her about Cruella either. You can also be an activist and join us in the fight against modern slavery by visiting our website, theantislaverycollective.org. And if you want to learn more about what we've discussed on today's episode, head to the show notes and follow the links. Our mission is to raise awareness about modern slavery. Please help us by sharing and posting about this podcast. Please make sure you subscribe to Floodlight wherever you're listening and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and we'd love to know about your own activism and who you'd like us to speak to next time. So see you next week. Bloodlight is a stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.